0: Okay, we're ready to go here. So I'm going to start off. Hello and welcome to this interview. My name is Beth Martins. I'm the host of this King Heroes Journey podcast, also a business archetype and purpose coach, helping people to be valued for the reason they came to this earth in the first place. I have the great pleasure of hosting Stephen Jenkinson today. He is a musician, author of several books, creator of the Orphan Wisdom School. Uh, He has an international touring band, several books on the go and lives on the road all the time. So before we get started, I just want to let you, the audience, know that you are in the right place if you yourself are a strong man who's looking for ways to get stronger, to keep your wits about you during these trying times. This is also amazing for us women who love to connect with these powerful men because it's a comfort to know that our leaders are out there in the way that they know how to lead. So, Welcome, Stephen. This is such a pleasure to host you. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you.
0: Would you want to take a a minute or so and just flesh out what it is, the work that you're doing for people that have not learned about your work yet?
1: Oh, well, that's a challenging thing. I mean, normally people who have a job can identify a particular thing uh, to the exclusion of many other possibilities. I don't have a job in that sense. So I'm doing a number of things sort of simultaneously. It doesn't allow for um, being brief about it, but very briefly. uh, I started a school about 10 years ago, as you mentioned. So I'm ongoingly, although we should say right off the bat, given the circumstance that we're talking in, it's not really wise to say with any authority what one is going to be doing. Because between cancellations and mayhem and, 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 and fears beyond describing and so on, there's really no way of knowing what the world would look like a, a week from now, you know, in all honesty. So, so, so I, I don't even know what I you know did even six months ago pertains now. But anyway, I have, I have a school, and if we're, if we're allowed to congregate, we'll do so again in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an international school. People come from all over for it. Mm. um it's a school about the unauthorized history of america that's what i call Mm. it in a nutshell
0: wow
1: and uh, i've written a couple of books well four i guess now um and i'm working on another one right now about uh, matrimony (laughs) should make me very popular (laughs) and uh, i say that jokingly and then Mm -hmm. uh, and then i have a a, a touring band and uh, the name of the event we call it nights of grief and mystery and we've toured not all over the world, but a uh, good, you know, on four continents. And actually we had a tour arranged starting at the end of uh, April. And we were gonna be on four continents again this year. And well, we'll see, we'll see what happens. I think the fall will probably go. Everything before that, it's very, very, obviously hard to tell. And um, I do a lot of one-offs teaching things and speaking things and, um, and I'm farming. So, um, Mm. there's no off hours given all that
0: yeah that's all by itself is a huge job so Mm. wow in in my world i would call you multi-passionate and (laughs) uh and i actually help with this exact what can be a problem because the the people that fit in with the the more cookie cutters you know i'm a this or or i'm a that and you and i are not like that we have multiple passions and interests and skills and. so I, I specifically help my clients to not suffer with that and, and to pull their, all of their stuff together into a meaningful way that can be recognized. So that's uh, I love that, that. That's, to me, the design of, of people that we can love many things and be skilled at many things at the same time.
1: That's what the word ambivalent means, actually, etymologically. It means Ooh. the capacity to entertain a number of distinct possibilities without defaulting prematurely to one to the exclusion of all the others that's all it means ambivalent
0: i love that i love looking at the actual origin of words and seeing how they've been very twisted on us so that's great that's awesome what was it if there was a turning point in your life what was it that inspired you to take this path was there some you know kind of inciting incidents or things that happened that uh, you went from some kind of an ordinary life into this life?
1: I don't think so. Um, you know, one's own memory about one's own life is not to be trusted necessarily, but I think on this matter, I could be fairly confident that um, I don't recall a life that was exclusive of the things that I just mentioned. Not formally. I mean, I didn't always have a school and, and, or a band and these other things, but it's... it's it's pretty clear that things were, <coughs> you could say moving in these directions and had been for some time in the first movie that was made about what I was doing was in, uh, I think the early 1980s. So, so it's, it's been a while now you could say. Um, I never hankered after the uh, public stage or the limelight or anything of that kind, and I still don't. But I do recognize that at times, one can be useful uh, without necessarily believing in the whole medium. And it's not manipulative to say such a thing. It's just, it's just wise that one's humility uh, helps one understand the centrality that one occupies in the proceedings. I don't. You know, I, I have a little humility about it. I'm, I'm lucky, I suppose, that I get reminded of that humility pretty routinely as well. But I don't think anything in particular Happened. I mean, I was, I was, uh, I had spinal meningitis when I was three and a half years old, and I was supposed to die in the, in the late 1950s. You died at that age from that.
0: Sure.
1: And, you know, obviously I can't claim uh, any credit for not dying at that age or any age, but I was lucky enough that it didn't really leave me, you know, the consequences of that didn't dissipate over time. I forgot many times, and became an ordinary lunkhead, you know, with the best of them, many times, but generally I was able to be idiotic according to my unwillingness to remember my insane good fortune at still being here. So <laughs> I, I think those, that by itself, which is far from spectacular, you know, it's not uncommon these days not to succumb to something the way people did even a decade or two decades ago, but something should happen to you and it shouldn't be lost, but you need people around you to help you remember that you're in your, what I like to call grace time, you know, the the over and above your normal allotment, that's that's where I find myself. So as long as I remember that, getting up seems to be a good idea.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, spoken like a true king hero. And because you're just being introduced to my world at this time, too, the, the king hero is an archetype that I work with. And they can't just sit back and watch a world go to hell or watch people suffer. They have to be part of, um, you know, creating those solutions for others. And a really big premise of the work that I'm doing is that, uh, you know, it's, we all have our purpose. You said we use the word useful and that, that to me is, is the same as, as purposeful. And then you can't have that if you're not connected to people, right? That's by definition, that, that it, purpose is inherently how you fit in with humanity. So I'm just hearing that in your words and, and using that word also, which is such a king hero thing and it's humility, right? That's what I notice is that the great people that I've met, life makes them more and more humble, the more and more great they get. The more they go into, and I'll use one of your words, uh, a kind of, um, you know, being awed by the mystery and being humbled by that. So, yeah. yeah. So speaking of of your work, what I've noticed is that it it does focus on something dear to my heart, which is why when you were recommended to me as a as an interview, I was interested in doing this is because you focus on the thing that a lot of people want to turn away from at every turn, and that's death. So do you think that's related to what you faced as a three-year-old, or were there other things in your life that brought you into alignment with that kind of work?
1: I didn't know there was such a thing as that kind of work, to honest. So, So, you know, obviously it wasn't a career path that I had in mind. I didn't know there was such a thing, and I'm not persuaded that there should be. To be frank, that the more you tend to specialize, uh, like the care of the dying, for example, generally speaking, what happens is the general population will um, um, shrug off the obligation to be wise in this regard and to participate deeply in this regard because, you know, we have professionals doing it, and it's 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 not a good arrangement, I would say. So it's and we're finding now that if you leave a relatively small number of healthcare professionals in charge of your health in any country you're asking for trouble obviously mm-hmm. and that's no that's no shadow upon the people who are working in the business i'm simply saying that the that the wisdom that should gather around these practice areas should be democratized you know it can't be specialized like this it it has to be pervasive and that carries a responsibility uh for the citizenry as well as as some kind of um, ability to be included in that. Uh, To my mind, what I was doing when I worked in the death trade, that's what I call it, was to try to take what I was beginning to realize, what I was lucky enough to see, and burdened enough to see, and turn it into something that was available, first of all, to the end users of the system, the the dying people and their families, and then secondly, to the wider audience, Eventually, I ran afoul of the arrangement, uh, I, I ran afoul of the, uh, the citadel, if you will. Uh, maybe that's part of your archetype as well, I don't know, but it certainly happened in my case, and, and they certainly came to get me, that's very true. Um, at some point, I had to make up my mind if, if the healthcare system, if I was going to agree with it, that the only way to have access to dying people was through their good graces. And I decided that can't be true. Even if it is true, it shouldn't be allowed to continue. So I simply made up my mind, without having any enemies, um, that made it easier. That what I was going to do was, um, if these people, if if the system at hand insisted on owning dying people, which is basically what it comes down to, then I would simply satisfy myself to be working with everybody else. In other words, people who will be dying people sooner or later. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's what I did. I just simply took on the rest of the population. I, it sounds a little bit grandiose to say it, but you do have to make up your mind from time to time who your, who your people are, so to speak, You know, in terms of the work that you're doing. Uh, whether they agree to be your people is yet to be seen, but, <laughs> but that's what I decided to do. And um, I'm glad I did.
0: That's beautiful. I love that, and it's exactly the the premise of the business coaching that I do. The very first step after getting some of that emotional navigation out of the way is to um, see, to see what is your natural audience. Who are your people? Who are uh, I love what you said. Like you know, you're not sure if they're gonna see themselves as your people, but
1: mm-hmm. I
0: believe there is a lock and key fit. I am a cancer survivor. I almost died uh, between the ages of 29 and 31. I was diagnosed with a stage four lymphoma. After a second diagnosis, I was co- told I was not going to survive it. Uh, you know, so I'm I'm very familiar with death. I just lost both of my parents, and. It is such a big part of life. We're all essentially, by definition, dying people. You know, we don't know if it's this week or next week or, or um, you know, a thousand weeks from now. But there is something that is it, you, you just can't get past this. And so, what is it that gives you the strength? Because most people don't have this strength. What gives you that strength to look death in the face and be able to serve at that level? That the majority of people would be frightened of?
1: Well, first of all, I think it's important to acknowledge that I never said I wasn't frightened. <laughs> You'd be an idiot if you weren't frightened. Mm-hmm. You simply wouldn't have any understanding of what you were dealing with if you weren't frightened. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a, an important part of the scheme of acknowledgement that you have to engage in routinely, is to, is to keep track of the low-grade ordinary terrors that beset you from time to time generally speaking what happens to me when i anticipate it and see it for the umpteenth time is that it saddens me that's the that's the lion's share of my my response and so i suppose from a relatively early age i had to be conversant with sadness i had to be versed in it you know and i had to be not a stranger to it and it doesn't make you wildly successful at parties i can tell you Mm-mm. Because it's, it's very hard to fathom spending any time with people who are not themselves informed by, you know, the various proper, legitimate, merciful endings that accompany being a conscious human being. And, you know, the notion that the only way you can have a good time is to put all these things to the side, that's not a good time, that's an empty time. And, um, you know, I'm not. I'm not an evangelist in that regard at all. Uh, you don't want to know about it. Don't call me. That's all, or don't have me around. Um, I don't think it's something to cope with. I think it's something to practice. I think we're talking about a skill here, at least I am, not an affliction. So the orientation properly is one of learning about it, not managing it, or or you know, uh, keeping it at bay or something of the kind. This is, this is proper tutelage, you know. I mean, all of the... If you think of how many um, fairy tales and such include some kind of monstrous apparition present in them and how many of them require some kind of perilous journey that needs to be undertaken in order either to, you know, win the, the object of your dreams uh, or the romantic object of your dreams or i mean it's quite astounding how many of these old folk tales include something monstrous it's because they knew <laughs> you know it's not cuz they were superstitious they didn't need superstition because the 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 unsought enormities of life once were people's companions it's not true today although the last 3 weeks or a month Maybe, maybe the old memory of this is starting to make itself felt again. I don't know. Well, you know, it remains to be seen. One thing you can count on though, is that the powers that be will see to it that you return to normal scheduled programming absolutely as soon as is humanly possible. And that means that they're gonna cultivate a circumstance where we forget whatever temporary coming to our senses that we're able to achieve as we're obliged to sit in our homes and look out our windows, if we're lucky enough to have a window, and, and have our normal anything interrupted without having a choice about it. These things are enormously important in the life of a human being, to be arrested, you know, to be stopped without having a vote. These kind of things, especially in a kind of, you uh, in, in a mad, consumer culture like the one I certainly am a product of. So uh, this is one of the things that we all need to be very alert to, is that um, not just the powers that be, I mean the, the internal powers that be as well. Uh, the instinct is going to be to turn the page pretty rapidly. And you know that they're going to be pitching you to go, be- go out there and spend and all of that stuff. And uh, it's going to turn into more fairy tale stuff when it could really be something that we learn how to live alongside of, which is what you know, my real advocacy is about, about where we sit now. And the reason I mentioned the, the uh, fairy tales in the first place.
0: Very good. Yeah, it's interesting. It brings up, when you say ordinary life, I think of the hero's journey is a very big part of my work. And uh, I just published a book on that, the archetypes of the hero's journey. And it is really a call. I get there. there's a little bit of a different meaning the way you're using it, but there is such a call to leave ordinary life behind. Right? You know, if you use yourself as an example, you didn't just go to school and get the job and the nine to five and have that, you know, recommended prescribed life. You did the thing that was in you to be done, you left that so-called and I'll go security because it's not very secure. We can see it now, right? Like if you're, many people have just lost their jobs, their, their whole entire industries are dissolving in front of them. Uh, but people like you and I who were willing to go off on our journey have uh, a different perspective. So I appreciate that you're using ordinary in, in much more of that like conventional way, but I just still wanted to, to speak to that, that point. Um, what was it for you to get out in front of people to have people listen to what you say have people come to your school and learn from you and consider you, you to be a leader of them what's that like for you to be in that leadership position and do you find it stressful at all
1: Well, I think, first of all, you have to agree to occupy the position in order to do so. You can't do it accidentally. Uh, you, you can't really do it unknowingly, I don't think, either. So I don't believe I've ever chosen that. So I would say to you, without any being disingenuous in any way, that I don't, I don't recognize myself in the characterization that you made. You know, I mean, if it weren't for the technology that you and I are speaking through right now, the chances are very good that nobody would have, quote, heard of me, which, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have caused any suffering in the world at all if that were the way it went. But, but these things make, it, make these transient little uh, bursts of uh, attention uh, demanding, pretty common in most people's lives. And I, I'm sure people spend, oh God, long days now at home poring over a machine like this, and trying to get informed and listen to the latest you know authoritative talking head you know spouting on and and all of that and you know anybody who's listening now could just turn around and say that's exactly what you're doing well if you listen to what i'm saying that's not what i'm doing i'm trying to speak against the inclination to elevate people this way so if i go back to the notion of a of an ordinary life um i take ordinary life to be the reason that all of this work is undertaken on behalf of. It's for the sake of the ordinary life that anything that's temporarily extraordinary is available to us. It's not to escape the ordinary life; It's to serve it. This is what I understand citizenship to be. And if you're a citizen of a relatively free country, which I still am for now, then it seems to be one of the... Ob- one of the conditions of my citizenship is to understand myself to be a child of my time. And the work that I undertake uh, is in the name of the, the, um, the sort of spirit labor that the troubles of the times um, burden you with. So um, how do I feel about it? Well, I mean, I I certainly consider myself fortunate to have reasons that I don't have to invent every day, all day long. Um, They're not subject to whether, and quote, anybody else is listening, though, to be frank. Um, Do I write a book uh, with people in mind? Of course I do. Uh, Am I trying to cultivate an audience for the book? Absolutely not. The book has to be crafted and perhaps the audience appears. And perhaps it doesn't. Certainly from the publisher's point of view, they're certainly hoping so. Me, myself though, I don't have a particular, there's no such thing as my audience, for example. Um, I don't orchestrate myself that way. I'm, I'm glad of the opportunity, but, I, but the, the thing of standing in public, which you began your question with, is something I never sought. I'm basically a shy person congenitally, and so it's, it's absolutely bizarre. Frankly, that I even be doing this with you now because it doesn't come to me as, as an inevitable part of my personality. This, I have to act against myself <laughs> to occupy any position like this. But one of the things that helps me with is any temptation I may have had in the early going to make broad declarations, uh, and in, in particular, to be the guy who generates answers that people clamor for when they come to things that I do, and of course that other people do too. I have no obligation to have all the answers, or any answers. I think in a time such as ours, which is so is choked with information, providing more information might not be the, in the public's best interest. On the other hand, maybe my obligation is to see if I can generate half a dozen good questions over the course of my lifetime. And if I'm able to do that, I think I'm earning my keep. because my take on a good question is that one of the hallmarks of it is that it survives all the answers that are trying to annihilate. it. Because that's, I mean, that's the training that most of us get. We're supposed to get on the other side of wondering, on the other side of indecision or ambivalence, as I said earlier. And that's, that was the reward system in school, right? To get the right answer as quickly as possible, and then sit back and watch all the other poor people struggle to get where you already got to. That's the reward system, and it still is. It's the reward system in business, in the marketplace, and so forth. But in the the realm of the, I don't know, being human, or in the realm of the soul, the principal obligation of a soulful human being is to be confounded by mystery, right? Mystery's principal job is not to give in. And you could say a good question is mystery's kind of uh, handmade, if you will, kind of servant- yeah, and, uh, and a good question reintroduces mystery into an information-drunk time. And so in a very <laughs> finer way, maybe I'm mystery's advocate.
0: Mm, I love that. Oh my gosh, that's so good. That's such a great job to give yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So inevitably, people do project I have to assume people project on you, right? Like, even though you're not putting yourself out as their leader and you don't even use that word, but do people try to, you know, hand off responsibility to you and uh, venerate you or blame you at times? And how do you handle that if it comes up?
1: Well, you know the answer to the question. That's why you're asking me about it. Of course, the answer is with some frequency, events like that take place. And uh, how do I handle it when it comes up? Well, um, it's simply not to agree that that's who I am or that's what I'm here for. Mm -hmm. I mean, during, after about the third year in the school or the fourth year, I became increasingly uncomfortable with the designation teacher. And uh, because I knew that's not what I was doing. And of course, the word teacher can take on certain venerating tones and all the rest and elevating tones and so on. So I began to say four or five years ago, ask the people that were closest to what I was trying to do. Listen, uh, we're not going to use the word anymore. Uh, Please don't refer to me that way because that's not what I'm doing. It's actually inaccurate, but you could call me a practitioner though. I'm practicing what I'm advocating. I'm not pointing to it or illustrating it or um, trying to get there from here i mean my my you know the act of me speaking is me trying to practice what i'm pleading for that's what i'm doing right now i'm not saying i'm not taking time off from that gig to talk to you about the gig <laughs> yeah that's basically it so mm-hmm. so when when it comes up uh, i mean it's a, it's a simple matter but socially obviously it's it can be very awkward or worse when you don't, you're not in the business of satisfying people's desire to crucify their indecisions or their sufferings. You know, I I don't have that responsibility. I'm not, I don't have the hammer and nails to finish the job. And uh, I guess when I'm done, as many people have attested, you know, at the end of a day or whatever it was, that there are, quote, more questions than there used to be and more uncertainties than there were and so on and uh, well that's a compliment to me because I think you know we're we do we were born most of us with an actively capable mind this is not an affliction this is not a punishment this is not the devil's playground and all that other lame stuff that you hear it's a package deal no? it's a package deal you got the whole thing and for most of us it comes in reasonably good working order now what we do with it is often, sadly, a much different thing. But if you have a mind that's capable of being confounded, then you have to recognize that being confounded is part of your mind's skill. It's not its defeat. It's, it's, it's the same thing as if you're learning anything physical, you know, a, a particular skill or, or, or athletic pursuit or something like that. In the early going, how do you look? And the answer is, not very impressive. Now you could quit right then and say, my body's no good for whatever it is. Or you could say, not yet, right? And, and the not yet part is what I'm referring to, uh, you know, about the mind and its many capacities not to be sure of itself. The amazing thing about not being sure of yourself is in North America, you, <laughs> and the telephone rings, of course. <laughs> not a um, problem. Just I won't talk over the ring. I'll just wait.
0: Perfect. I do an edit,
1: so that's totally fine. <laughs> um. Yeah, f- of course I forgot the general line I was talking about, but the thrust. You're of it saying. Our, yeah, it's our
0: not a mistake to that the be
1: absolutely sure of ourselves is in fact a different kind of ability, and that's what learning is. You know, learning is not the halfway house towards knowing. Learning is the solution for knowing. And I'm much more in, in favor of learning as a project for every part of you engaged than I am knowing. Knowing is a very transient condition and not to be really trusted. It's very, it's very temporary and, and it's not that impressive. But learning, though, my god, I mean, learning is an extraordinary, um, um, and a very lucky thing to be inclined towards. But you can't demonize the uncertainty that comes with it, you see. So, so if, I'm, if I happen to be a vector for that occurring, as people are wondering about what I'm saying, you know, maybe we could be partners in the confusion instead of one of us being its victims and the other of its being a solution.
0: Mm. So much wisdom in there. Wow, I love it. Don't demonize the uncertainty because that's what's happened, unfortunately, in the, especially the new age, you know, so-called spiritual world, because that's the thing, you know, they say the mind is bad, the ego is bad. Don't think at all costs, don't think. And especially if the mind becomes confounded, as you said, you get into confusion and doubt and all that kind of thing. It's treated to be the enemy so then people pretend it's not happening since they're not supposed to have that experience and then it just goes deeply into the unconscious and becomes a much uh, stronger monster
1: in their world you know never never doubt the capacity of the language to help you uh, gain some clarity about these things so here's a very good example we have the word conviction right and generally speaking, people are rewarded for having convictions. And the stronger they, they are, uh, the more admirable they become, apparently. But the root word for conviction is convict. I know. So, so <laughs> you, you want to you start raising the question about conviction early on and say, really, uh, who's being convicted by your conviction?
0: Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. I knew this was going to be great. So what makes it worth it for you to go through your work? I know the work of international touring. That's not easy. I know that for a fact.
1: Yeah.
0: Writing a book. That's not easy. You've done several, um, carrying the responsibility of other people following you at whatever level. That's not easy. What makes it worth it for you to do all this work?
1: I don't know if this is going to sound horribly uh, naïve to you, but getting to do it, most of no. the time, it is its own reward. I know. Yeah. There, I there's know. There's nothing else that has to happen, you know. I mean, maybe it's important for me to say this. I, I do know what it's like to have work that you can't believe in, that somehow violates you fundamentally that obliges you to look the other way on every important thing that you were able to manage to, to catch some glimpse of. And then to be young in the bargain. That's a horrible combination. And I'm not a stranger to that circumstance, you see. So when I say getting to do it, I'm, I'm not talking, I'm not saying it's flowers in the field kind of thing. I mean, if you get to engage the things that trouble you most, and you get paid to do it, for crying out loud. And, and people incidentally let you know from time to time that there seems to be some benefit f- for them in you being powerless to, cha- to alter what has come to claim you. This is a pretty good arrangement, really. And the, I, mean th- I think the only way to remain mindful about it is to remind yourself how unlikely it is, how uncommon it tends to be, how fleeting, and how impermanent the whole arrangement could be. You know, so for for myself, the fatigues and so on, they're, um, it's a package deal, you see. If you have feet, you can get a lot of places with them, but they're going to get tired. If you have lungs, it'll give you lots of oxygenated uh, air Or excuse me, a blood, but you can also become terribly allergic at the same time with the same organ. You see, and you know I could give you a hundred examples, and you could think of them as well. So all of these things together, maybe they they conspire just to tell us, listen, man, while you're still here, and you can still think, you don't want to be laying there, ticking off all the boxes of what you didn't consider or what you grew simply too busy to do. If, I, if I'm on the road with a band, I mean, it's an enormous responsibility, financial and, and, um, and psychological, you know, and these people have dependents at home and they're taking their their training, their musical training and their accomplishments and their their own chops and lending it to you, basically. So all of these things are, uh, require you know, an ongoing understanding of how to hold these things in good stead, how to do so honorably, excuse me, how to take people's money when they pay a ticket to come and see you and understand that you're going to live your whole day as if when they are, you know, their day is is cooling out, your day is escalating to the point where you're going to meet at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the evening. And you're going to do so in a way that doesn't require them to be at their best. But you must be at your best because that's what you advertised, for example. And, you know, if I was 22 trying to do that night in and night out, well, that's a recipe for all kind of drug and sex and drugs and the whole thing. Of course it is. Because nobody at 22 can pull that off night after night. But if you're lucky at 65, if people are still coming to see you and... And you've got your shit figured out, excuse my language, and, and other people are conspiring with you to, 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 to do the work, but you barely have an excuse. I mean, you, you know, it'd be hard to screw that up. Well, that's not entirely true, but I'd just like to say that as a formal stance. It's kind of hard to completely blow that arrangement because there's so many things mysteriously in your favor. I guess the best way I'd describe it is when I was working in the death trade I was trying to find language that, that did justice to what I was seeing which is very very challenging to do because there is no death-informed language in the death trade at least there wasn't when I was there and I'd be shocked if it was still if it was, if it was any different now but and so I, I came up with a phrase to, to characterize to myself what I thought I was doing. I said My obligation was to be a faithful witness and to understand what a burdensome privilege it was to be let in on the hardest time of a fellow human being's life. Period. That was it. And the burdensome privilege remains even though I'm not in the business of caring for dying people anymore. And uh, being a faithful witness is something I do night after night in front of a five-piece band.
0: Oh my gosh, how, how beautiful. Is there something now, just given the time that we're in, if you could speak to what people are going through right now, if there is, I'd like to hear two things. If, if you can, you know, there's so many things I know you're, you're very into the mystery, but when you look out and you see what's going on, what's your make of it? What, what, what do you put together coming from a more outside the box kind of place? And what advice would you give people at this time right now?
1: Well, the second question is easy to answer. I don't, I, I don't give advice. Advice mm-hmm. is, the, is the cheapening of the dilemma that you're contending with. So I would never do that. Uh, on the other hand, I'm not, I'm not impotent and powerless and paralyzed in the face of something that I cannot quote change. I have no obligation to be paralyzed simply because I'm not in charge, you see. So what do I see? Well, I don't know what quote anybody else is facing, you see. And I'm not going to generalize from what, how things look out my window right now, as that's what I mean by the ordinary life. But, but I could look out this one and I could say something like this to you. Everybody knows who's, who's been looking at the news that this thing, quote, started in China. And then a lot of people even know the, pro- the province, if that's what they call it over there, and then even the city. And some people know the name of the market that has been identified as the kind of ground zero of the whole operation, which they call a, a wet market. This is a place, and it's not just in China that this happens, of course, where um, domesticated Uh, animals and wild animals occupy exactly the same place often in cages one above the other and people go and shop there for uh, for their daily fare and it's fairly clear that what happened in that market was that this virus leapt the canyon from the wild to the domestic animal and subsequently to the human. If you stopped your investigation there you might think that you have a kind of epidemiological understanding of the whole thing. But don't stop there, because there is something to be understood from this that the the simple facts are not saying. And I think the understanding comes down to this. You know, if you ever want to learn a good lesson, you could learn it now, that the wild is supposed to be wild. And we're supposed to keep our distance from it. We're not wild no matter what anybody says about their weekends in the country. We're not wild people, okay? Human beings, by definition, aren't wild. We can entertain certain thoughts about it. We can flirt with the edges of it. But we do so beyond a certain point to our peril, as we now clearly have seen. So what this means, it seems to me, is human beings are going to places they don't belong simply because they can And that sense of entitlement and being enabled by virtue of the technology and the friggin sportswear and whatever the hell it is, ecotourism and all of that, all of this is conspiring to make not only make the world smaller but not in any way quote safer. These things belong you know the stuff that's underneath the ice and it's being revealed now with the warming and uh You know, I'm not going to add to the fire. I'm just going to say that, uh, you know, we will find out that this is a sequence of consequences. Not punishments, but consequences to be sure, which is what grown-ups know. You know, adult people recognize there's consequences to their actions, and some of them were intended, and many of them are not. And nobody intended for this to go the way it's going. I'm fairly sure. But that doesn't mean it's not utterly traceable to our sense of almost obscene access we have to, quote, almost anywhere we want to go. And so you could say maybe the for the moment, the moral of the story, although the story is far from done, but the moral of the story for the moment might be something like this. We must begin to apprentice ourselves to limits that we agree to live within, even though We could do otherwise and we have done otherwise, but we have to agree to be limited. And I'm not persuaded that North Americans, which is the only people I know anything about, are inclined in any way to knuckle under to limits unless they're forced to, you see. So, W.H. Auden had a gorgeous and, and lamenting kind of observation. He said, uh, we, we are of a time where we would rather be defeated than be persuaded. That's what I mean spoken differently. So we, we could be in, the, in a deep and bracing apprenticeship to the, to the necessary limits of where in this world we go and what we eat and how we live and how many of us there are. And uh, I, I, I say with no satisfaction to you at all that I doubt very much that uh, the general population is going to be willing to be educated in that way by what's happening right now.
0: Very good. Um, One of the subjects that I like to talk about on these interviews because it's again a big part of my world is the masculine and feminine archetypes and how that plays out in the world of men and women and whether it's relationships one-to-one on an intimate level or more on a social and political level where I see men and women have often been pitted against each other. What do you see in, in that situation? What do, you, what do you say about it? What kind of uh, wisdom would you have to share about
1: it? Well, the language that you've used, men and women being pitted against each other, by, by whom? By what? And you know, immediately you begin to recognize that that kind of language is a kind of conspiracy sort of language, you know? And it's something, language is something I really pay attention to. So I'm not willing to go along with the idea that there's some other kind of being that's neither man nor woman that's pitting men and women against each other. It's men and women who are doing that. That's the first thing. So you could say, strangely enough, it seems to be in the manner of being a man or a woman now, to be contentiously oriented to the other gender, or however many genders there are anymore. I, I can't keep track and I'm not trying to, but this comes up in the school all the time, what you're asking me about. Um, people come at various stages of life with an understanding of themselves that, they, that they're more than keen to share. I'll just put it this way. And um, a a classic example would be uh, the language around, quote, patriarchy. Not my word, but it's a word that shows up with, with giddy ease when I hear it. And universally, when people use it, in my hearing at least, it's a pejorative term. So let's just pause for a minute without voting on the thing. Just pause for a minute and ask yourself this. What do you think a consequence is to a culture when many of its leading voices employ a word that by definition demeans a particular gender-specific function called fathering? What do you think the consequences inevitably are, not just for fathers, but for anybody who's ever had a father, anybody who's ever wanted to be a father? Anybody who ever has tried to admire fatherhood and its various challenges and so on. See, using the word patros in this word doesn't inherently mean wrong, wrongheaded, evil doing, a potential rapist and so on and so on and so on. It's not even about men. It's about the function of fathering. That's what the word patriarchy means. It means... The the fundament that's the A R C H E part, it means the the fundament of human life, which is found in the functions of fathering. Don't forget there's a, there's another word matriarchy. It says virtually the same thing about the functions of mothering, but it doesn't say that only men are capable of fathering, nor that only women are capable of mothering, because these are functions. They're not identities. They're things to be done that the culture requires of us. They're not personal, you know, notches on the belt. So uh, when they're used in these unconscious ways, generally destructive ways too, by the way, uh, one of my obligations is, uh, as someone who has an institute of learning, is to subject all of the convictions and all the prejudices to learning. Not to new prejudice but to learning and are you saying there's no such thing as the patriarchy yes that's exactly what i'm saying find a word that does justice to the injustice that you are identifying with this word because to use the word patriarchy to describe it is intellectually dishonest and it's fundamentally lazy among a host of other things never mind how damaging it is to 17 and 20 year old young men who are trying to find their way, who we will need to be in pretty good working order sometime real soon, and infuse them with the idea that they're inherently part of the problem. This is not going to do anyone any good, ever.
0: Okay. That sounds good. So, then... What, um, okay, I'm just going to start this over as a sentence here. So what's the best way for people to connect with your work, to find your school, to buy your books, or take you up on any of the offerings that you might have?
1: Well, like just about everybody else on the planet, I have a website. I'm not bragging, it wasn't really even my idea, but there it is. And it makes this kind of um, information gathering easier. So I think it's orphanwisdom.com, that's it, or my name, uh, Steven Jenkinson, y- y- you'll find it just, just as readily that way. And um, I'm out there a lot, so uh, it's not that difficult with some planning, or at least it hasn't been until recently, to uh, find yourself in the same place as me, engaged in something similar. Like I said earlier, we had a 70-city world tour, performing tour, organized, basically organized and ready to go at the end of uh, April. And I don't know how much of it is going to survive what's happening. Uh, I'm, I'm fairly confident that we might be able to do at least two thirds of the tour, uh, starting uh, if not in sort of May and June in the, U- in the Europe part of things, then in September in the North American part of things and then down to Australia. Um, I have a school, but it's, I can only have so many people in the school at a time, and we just don't, we do the structure here at the, excuse me, the school here at the farm, and the infrastructure we have, we're out in the country, and we're on a well, and we're on solar power, and so on, so we can't do some retreat center of, you know, hundreds and hundreds, and that, and, uh, so it's just the way it goes, you know, there's limited, you know, it's one person trying to do something, and, uh But no doubt there's other people doing things at least as compelling as anything I can come up with. And uh, the fact that I don't know them doesn't mean they're not out there. It just means, you know, I'm busy on my own dinner plate. You know, I'm doing my best to cook and to serve and to eat all in in the course of a day. And uh, so far, so good.
0: Very good. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks to the audience for taking the time to look and listen in today. If you yourself are looking to see where you are in the path of purpose, you can visit my website to do an archetype quiz, either the king hero, if you're a guy out there looking to be a more powerful leader. If you are a woman who's wanting to step into the value of your purpose, then you can do the Merpreneur's archetype quiz. I have just published my book called Journey. It's a map of archetypes to find lost purpose in the sea of meaninglessness, because I think that that is the disease that humans suffer right now not having the life of meaning not being able to say I get to do this because to me that's exactly the same reward that I have and the the happy side effect is that people get the benefits but mostly it's that I feel very privileged and honored to be doing this work myself so thank you Stephen it's been a pleasure Uh, can you say the url of your website one more time
1: please yeah it's orphan wisdom just like it sounds Orphanwisdom.com, I guess. It's all there.
0: Do you want me to look it up? Let me just look it up quickly so that... I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Yeah, so orphanwisdom.com to check in with Stephen. And uh, you can visit me at bethmartins.com. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Stay safe, stay well. Think for yourself. And you can't go wrong with that. Bye, everyone. Alrighty. That was awesome.